You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. A few weeks ago, uh, the pastoral team, along with our wives, had our annual fall retreat, something that we've been able to do since we planted several years ago. And, uh, and, and typically these retreats are a great time for, for team soul care. We, we pray for one another, we invest in our team unity and health, and all those things are good and important. And uh, we look forward to it every year. But this most recent retreat was more like a, a recalibration of purpose. I think that's what we could call it. We, we wanted to come back to the questions, why do we exist? Like, what are we, as a church, what are we mainly about? That was the topic of discussion. That's what we prayed about. And, you know, it's all pretty simple. I, I don't imagine that uh, you'll be surprised by this. This is nothing new. Our purpose as a church, our purpose is to delight in and display the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. Our mission and vision as a church, everything that we do as pastors and service and accountability to you, everything about our staff, everything about our, our band and all those who serve in children's ministry and Sunday welcome and space setup and, and AV support, everything about our community groups and our life groups, everything about our presence and ministry to these cities and the places where we live, work, and play, everything about our church ultimately terminates on this purpose. We exist to delight in and display the glory of God. We enjoy and we exalt God in all of his glory. And this means that we as a church, we, we worship him and we want others to worship him with us because we want his glory to be magnified above all things because he's God. He, he is more important than anything else that there is and we, we love him for that. That's, this is the thing that we, we just can't get over. We love God being God. We love that God is God. We're amazed by that. And, and so for, for me, like I, I, I could take some lessons, I think, here from my son Nathaniel. I, uh, my, my son Nathaniel, uh, he always brings things back to God. He, we just uh, recently, he and his brothers and me were talking, and I think the question, this was a few weeks ago, the question was, uh, was about their favorite holiday. Like, what's your, you know, of all the holidays, what's your favorite time? And, and, um, and I've heard Nate say this before, whether he's talking about his favorite food or his favorite sport or his favorite movie, um, he could tell you about his favorite anything, and then he'll say this. He'll say, but God is better. True story. He'll do, he does this. We'll be talking, God's, God is better, right, Dad? And I'm like, yeah, buddy, that's right. God is better, and God is bigger, and God is more important than anything else that any of us could imagine. I mean, just, just try. You can't. We exist for him. We as individuals, we exist for him. We as a church, this church exists for him. That's what the passage today is about, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 29. Now, this is a long passage. 
There's a lot of Old Testament allusions and quotations here. There's a mixture of both practical exhortation and doctrinal explanation. And I'll just tell you, I spent a long time on this text this week. I spent a long time digging into these verses. But I'm going to just try today to summarize the whole thing for you in just one sentence. Okay, this is the whole passage here. I'm going to summarize it in one summary sentence that's divided up into three parts which will be like the three points for the sermon. Okay, here's the sentence. Number one, keep running again. Number two, because we have what is better. Number three, therefore, worship God. It's not the smoothest sentence, but keep running again because what we have is better, therefore, Worship God. That's the outline. Let's pray again and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we ask now, help us, please, as we set our attention on your holy scriptures. Give us open and receptive hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first part of the sentence, keep running again. And the reason that I say again is because we've already seen this. We've been seeing this for the past two Sundays, verses 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Number uh, Verse 3, don't get weary or faint-hearted, which implies keep running. And then today, verse 12, therefore, b- because we now understand why the running is hard, Last week. Because now we understand God's fatherly discipline in verses 5 to 11. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. There are two things happening here in verses 12 and 13. And the first thing to see is that the writer of Hebrews is just continuing the running metaphor that he started back in verse 1. Now, I don't pretend to know much about the proper form when it comes to running, okay? But I did verify this with a legit runner before the service, and so I can say with good authority that when you run, when you're running, endurance running, what do you do with your hands, right? That's the question I had. And and you want to keep your hands, I'll, just, I'll demonstrate, okay? This has been verified by a runner. I just want you to know that. I'm not a runner, but this has been, you know. When you run, you want your hands to be somewhere like up here, right? You know, not, not necessarily like, you know, somewhere in this area, okay? Now, what you don't want is you don't want your hands down here. Does that make sense? Like if you're running with your, if you, if you see someone running and their hands are down here, that's like the universal sign that they're probably what? Tired, right? It's not, it's not they're struggling, right? If you, see, if you see someone running with their hands drooping down by their side, that's not a good sign. They're struggling. Now, imagine, this, imagine, imagine someone running like that with their hands drooped down, and now add to that weak knees. Drooping hands and weak knees. You guys get that image? This is a runner in bad shape, right? 
This is a runner who's about to drop. And so we can just, right here we see, the, the writer of Hebrews is still working within this running metaphor in verses 12 and 13. Notice in verse 12, the verb there, lift or strengthen. Now in the original, there's just, there's just one verb here that applies to both the drooping hands and the weak knees. And, and the word, it basically means to restore or to to really to re-straighten or to, or to re-strengthen, which is something that's necessary if you're going to keep running. That's what you got to, if you're drooping and your, your, your knees are, are weak, you have to re-strengthen, restore those things. Look at verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet. Again, he's thinking about runners. If, if you're going to keep running, you got to stick to the path. You have to run straight so that what is lame won't be. Again, we can see here in verses 12 and 13 that the writer is saying what he's been saying this whole time. He's working in the same metaphor. Run again, keep running again. But there's something else he's doing I want you to see. Verses 12 and 13 allude to at least two Old Testament verses. First, I want you to listen to Isaiah 35, verse 3. Now, the context of Isaiah 35 is full of joy and hope. Isaiah has been talking about God's future salvation, and this is what he says, Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Isaiah 35. Now listen to Proverbs 4, verse 26, ponder or make straight the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. That's Isaiah 35, 3, Proverbs 4, 26. And then it sure seems like the writer has these two verses in mind in verses 12 and 13. The, the early Christians who first heard this book they would have absolutely made the connections here to Isaiah 35 and Proverbs 4. And I think what's brilliant about what the writer is doing, I just want to say this, what's brilliant about what he's doing is that he is simultaneously quoting Old Testament verses and he's still keeping it within the running metaphor. This is pretty amazing what he's doing here, right? He's saying to these Christians, to us, again, keep running. Like I've been saying, keep running again. And here's support from the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what he's doing. It's amazing. And then he gives us another command in verse 14. He says, strive or pursue peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace, pursue holiness. This is part of the running. This is what you do when you're running. And one of the, one of the important things to recognize here, to know about this peace and this holiness is that peace and holiness are the fruit of the gospel for all things horizontal and vertical. She made that connection. Peace, horizontal, peace with everyone. Holiness, vertical, our relationship to God. In, in the death of Jesus, he demolished the walls of hostility that stood between us and others. 
which means that for us at a personal level, uh, the world has now really become our neighbor. Our, our default orientation to everyone is peaceableness. And holiness means that we are maturing as God's sons and daughters. We should be increasingly living in congruence to who God has made us to be in Christ, in who God is making us to be. This is is the sentence here now. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a holiness here that is required in order for us to see Jesus. There's verse 14. The the only way we're going to see Jesus face to face one day is if we have this holiness, which is to say is if we are made like him. We must be holy like Jesus. We must be holy like him. I think that's something that we should remember when we imagine the day that we're going to see Jesus. Okay, you know I, I, I love to think about that. Imagine the moment when we'll meet Jesus, when I'll see Jesus. A lot of times in worship, I'll try to go there in my imagination, and I, I'll think about seeing him face-to-face for the first time. And, and typically, I've mentioned this before, uh, I'll glance up here at this window, and I'll, I'll see this, uh, you know, Jesus here behind us. And, I'll, you know, I, I don't think Jesus really looked like that, okay? Probably not. But we know he looks something like that, okay? In that, Jesus has a face, y'all, you know? Like, he's got hands. He's got eyes. And one day, we're going to see him. One day, I'm going to see him. And I, I think about that, and to be honest with you, I, I, I wonder, like, what am I going to do? You know, we have some places in Scripture where we see encounters like this. Am I going to just fall down on my face? What am I going to do? Well, I, I, get, I can get kind of nervous thinking about it, to be honest. Like, what exactly would that be like? But, but what helps me as I imagine that moment of seeing Jesus face to face, what helps me is to remember that I will be in that moment completely holy. Which means I'm not going to say anything dumb, Right? I'll see him, and I will, be, I will be like him in that moment. And the holiness that I will have in that moment, and the peace that I have horizontally with others, both are realities that I have received in his gospel. I don't earn any of these things. They are gifts that are given to me through my union with Jesus, and that's true for all Christians. And therefore, we pursue, we pursue peace and holiness. We pursue them not to earn them, but to fulfill them, to, to bring them to completion. That is basically the Christian life. That's what the running is. That's what the running is about. We are increasingly becoming who we are in Christ. And there are some warnings here that are part of that running. We see these warnings in verse 15 and verse 25. Warnings are part of the running. And what I'm going to do is 
Um, for the sake of time here, I'm going to combine these warnings together, all right? I'm not going to spend a lot, a lot on it. I wrote to you about this in the email uh, on Friday, and I titled it, Two Mistakes to Avoid in Discipleship, and I focused in more on these warnings. But just notice for today, verses 15 and, and 25, they both begin with the word see. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain or falls short of the grace of God. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In both cases here, in 15 and following, in 25 and following, the writer is going to give us a negative example from the Old Testament. There's Esau as a negative example in the first warning. Then there's Israel at Mount Sinai as the negative example in the second warning. And the message here is simply, don't be like them. Don't be short-sighted like Esau who failed to think about the future. And don't be fearful like Israel who failed to obey God speaking in the present. When it comes to running with endurance, we need to have both the long view and we need to know that every step matters in the moment. These, these warnings are part of the running. Running is still the major theme of this chapter. And so our first point is keep running again. You guys got that? Do me a favor. Look at, turn, turn to your neighbor and say, keep running again. You're tracking. All right, that's the first part of the sentence. Keep running again. Here's number two. Because, keep running again, because what we have is better. This is verses 18 to 24. I'll just say, man, this section right here is incredible. I'm going to read the whole thing to you again, but let me tell you what's going on. The writer is going to do another contrast here, basically between the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's done this contrast before. We've seen him do this. But what makes the contrast different in chapter 12 is that it's a contrast of our experience. And what he does here is, is, is riveting, okay? The, the writer starts in verse 18 by describing the experience of Israel at Mount Sinai. He's describing the event of Exodus chapter 19. But when he describes it here, beginning in verse 18, he describes it like he's a play-by-play -play commentator, okay? I'll just, like TV and screens have basically ruined our imaginations and stuff, so, so we can't appreciate this the way that the original readers and hearers would have appreciated this. But imagine, imagine back here at this time in the first century, these early Christians, imagine them hearing what he's saying here. It is loaded with sensory language. Okay, so just try, try to imagine, try to put yourself in their shoes for a second. And, and he, I'm going to read this and just try to track with the senses that are evoked in what he says here in verse 18. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
four. They could not endure the order that was given. Even if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So they're hearing this. And, and it's all, what he's describing here is it's all, it's touchable, and it's smellable, and it's hearable, and it's seeable. Old covenant Israel came to that at Mount Sinai. They came to that experience, and it terrified them. Even Moses, mighty Moses, courageous Moses, trembled with fear, the writer says. But see, we have not come to that. Instead, we have come to something different. We have come to something better. And I know we've talked before. Uh, there's an overall theme here in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better. We've seen that several times. That's what's going on here. It's that same theme. Jesus is better. But here, I just want to say, this is like an absolute fireworks show in these verses, verses 22 to 24. They remind me, they, they, they remind me of like the grand finale of a fireworks show. You guys have seen a fireworks show before? You know there's that part right before the grand finale. You know it's going to happen because it kind of like, they kind of stop for a second. And then you hear all the fireworks be shot out right behind each other. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, doof, 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 doof. you know what I'm talking about? You know, that's what this is, okay? So imagine that's what's happening here in verse 22. There are seven descriptions of Mount Sinai in verses 18 to 21. And now in verses 22 to 24, there are seven descriptions of the glory of Mount Zion. And the writer is saying, this is what we have come to. So, so listen to this, Christian, and know that what I'm saying here, what I'm reading here, this is yours. You've come to this. You have this. You have not come to Mount Sinai, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And it's just, see? It start, this is just a fireworks show of the glory of what we have in the new covenant in Christ. It's absolutely stunning here. We have come to this. It's like the writer is saying to us in this fireworks show, do you know where you are? Do you have any idea where you are? Yeah, look, I know you can't see it all right now, but you have it. You can't see it all right now, but you have come to this. And you can have the assurance of things hoped for. You can have the conviction of things not seen. These are yours. And I would love this morning to slow down and look in detail at each one of these descriptions, but that would take us all day. And so what I want to do briefly is, is run through these seven descriptions, just give you a word about, about what they are, okay? 
I'm going to just list them down. There's seven. Number one, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. This is home. Okay? This is our home. In chapter 11, it's called the homeland, the better country, the city that God has prepared for us. It's the unshakable kingdom in verse 28. It's the city that is to come in chapter 13, verse 14. The new Jerusalem is our future. In that one day, we will, we will stand in that city, come down from God, come down from heaven. But we are citizens of that city now, in this moment. That city is our home now, although we're not there yet. And we should say, we should say here in our exile, we should say of that city what the psalmist says of the old Jerusalem in Psalm 137 when he says, If I forget you, old Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, old Jerusalem, if I do not set you above my highest joy. This is home for us. New Jerusalem is home. And look, we, just, we, we should think more about heaven, y'all, like we should. We should think more about that city, and we should live today as a witness to that city that is to come. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he's bringing a city, our home. We're not, we're not trying to build that city now, here. We're trying to tell people about that city that is to come and bring with us as many people as we can to that city when it comes. Number two, innumerable angels in festal gathering. I love that sentence. Another way to say it is just like party with the angels. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells us about the joy of the angels over one sinner, sinner who repents. That's in Luke 15. So imagine here, I mean, this is thousands and thousands and thousands of angels, like too many to the count. And all these angels are together. They've gathered together, and they're celebrating. And we're, we're part of that celebration. <laughs> We've come to that celebration. Number three, the assembly or church, ecclesia, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And that, that word there, you see probably a note in your, in your, if you have an English standard version, the word assembly is the word for church. And this is a way, this verse is a way to talk about the universal church. This is the whole communion of saints. So it's every Christian who has ever lived across all time and place. It includes those who have died in the faith, like the cloud of witnesses in verse 1. And it includes all true believers across all denominations today. This is whoever has their name written in heaven. We are part of that membership. We are part of that church. Before, we have come to God, the judge of all. And this means just what it says. God. We've come to God. Jesus died to bring us to God, we have God who is the judge of all. And that, that phrase there is speaking to the supreme authority of God. No one is above him. 
There's no one to get to after him. He is ultimate. He is God, the judge of all. And you might wonder, like me, why, why put God at number, number four here in this list if God is most ultimate, right? I mean, this is a question. I, if God is sovereign, the judge over all, most ultimate, why put God four? Why not put God at the end of the list? Well, remember that these Christians, they know that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Chapter 10, verse 31. They've, they've just been reminded a couple verses earlier about Mount Sinai. And they were reminded about how frightening it was when Israel encountered God. And so the question is, how can the writer ensure us that our coming to God the judge will be different than those in Exodus 19? Well, what he does is, he starts by telling us about those who have already faced God, the judge of all. He tells us about those who have faced God's judgment in the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Number five on the list. So what he's doing here, he's referring here to all of those who have died in faith, those who have finished their race, and those who have faced the judgment of God. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So the saints who have died in faith have experienced that. They have experienced God, who is the judge of all, and they have not been incinerated. Why? How? Number six, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We've come to Jesus. This new covenant that is better than the old is mediated by a Savior who is better than all. He is a better priest, a better prophet, a better king, and we have come to him. And there is a great story from the life of John Bunyan all about this. It is happening early on in Bunyan's ministry. Uh, John Bunyan became a Christian first against all odds. It was an unlikely conversion. He ended up being mentored by his pastor, John Guilford. Uh, and he started preaching right away. And uh, he had already, by this time, written some books. Like God was at work. God was using John Bunyan in 17th century England. And he got really sick all of a sudden. He had a, a grave illness, bedridden, really bad off. And through this sickness, he talks about how Satan, he says Satan continually assaulted him with doubts and with fears. It's the prospect that he might die and meet God. Terrified him, even as a Christian. And so Satan exploited that fear and uh, he struggled through that whole physical sickness. Eventually he recovered from that physical sickness, but then he came under what he called a great cloud of darkness. He struggled with debilitating uh, uh, depression. And he had what he called um, basically spiritual apathy. This is what he, he, he's how he described it. He wrote, I could not feel my soul to move or stir after grace and life by Christ. 
It just felt dead inside. And this continued for a while until one night he was sitting by the fireplace with his wife Mary. And they're in their small, you know, 17th century English home. And suddenly, as he's sitting there with his wife, a sentence flashed across his mind. It just came into his mind. And he thought, I must go to Jesus. I must go to Jesus. And so he he looked at his wife, Mary, and he said, wife, is there ever such a scripture as I must go to Jesus? And so Mary, of course, she grabbed her phone and she began to Google. No. That's what we do. Well, she, what she, she, had, she took their Bible, and she's just searching through the pages of their Bible, trying to find this. Fr- I'm as good. And she finally came to a place where she's like, I cannot tell. I, I, can't, I can't find it. And then suddenly, boom, it came to him. And John Bunyan said, Hebrews 12, 24. But ye are come unto Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And he said that joy flooded his soul and he wanted so badly in that moment, late in the night, he wanted so badly to tell people about this truth. He wrote, Christ was a precious Christ to my soul that night. I could scarce lie in bed for joy and peace and triumph through Christ. How about that? Jesus met him with the truth that you've come to me. You have me. I'm yours, your mine. Church, look, we have come to Jesus. We have come to him, and he's better. His new covenant is better. And so we keep running again. We keep running because Jesus, what we have in him, is better. It's better. And therefore, We worship God. Keep running again because what we have in Christ is better. Therefore, number three, worship God. Look at verse 28. We're going to skip there. Ask the question, what do we do then with all this? In light of all that we've come to, in light of this unshakable kingdom that is ours in Christ, verse 28, therefore, I think that's the therefore for the whole chapter. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Because what we have in Christ is better. We run with endurance the race set before us, and we keep running. And ultimately, all the running, all of it, ultimately, is about worship. It's about worship. We exist to worship God. That's the purpose. That's the why. We enjoy and we exalt God in all of his glory. And that worship, the writer says, is to be acceptable or pleasing worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And isn't it interesting that the writer, he ends this whole section with these words. That's an image that he gives us here. God, a consuming fire. That's a a quote from Deuteronomy 4.24. For Yahweh, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Why does the writer end the chapter with this? That's the question I have. 
I mean, in the passage just before this that we saw last week, the writer tells us that God is our Father who loves us and who treats us as his children. Why does he end here with consuming fire? Well, we don't know precisely why he does it this way, but we know it's connected to the Mount Sinai reference in verse 18. And I think it's because the writer wants to remind us that our God, the God we worship, our Father, is the same God that we read about at Mount Sinai. Same God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed his terrifying glory to a fearful Moses and a faithless Israel, that God is our God. Same God, but better covenant. Same God, but better promises. Same God, but better hope in Jesus. We have a better everything in Jesus, so we give God thanks. And God is the same God he has always been, so we know that he is not to be trifled with. We worship God in light of this, in response to this. We remember that God is full of stunning grace. And the grace is stunning because it's the grace of a consuming fire. That's what makes it so amazing. And when we understand this, when of course we're overcome with gratitude. When we understand this, reverence and awe is just what happens. Reverence and awe is what can't not happen because we realize, we understand, this is not teddy bear grace. It's consuming fire grace. What? Consuming fire grace is what we've received in Christ. So we keep running again because what we have in Christ is better And therefore, we worship God at consuming fire, and that's only because of the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than Abel. And that's what brings us to the table. See in verse 24, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and then that last description there in verse 24 tells us how. We have come to Jesus by his blood, by his high priestly sacrifice of himself. Jesus has made the way for us. Through his death, Jesus has given us blessings world without end. His blood is our boast. His empty tomb is our hope. Jesus is everything to us. And we give him thanks for that at this table. We worship God because of Jesus at this table. And so if you're here this morning and you have put your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, we invite you to eat and to drink with us and to give him thanks to worship God in Christ. We're going to serve the bread first. You can just hold it. I'll come back up and we'll we'll eat the bread all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.